Well, I hope you keep your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, or your devices open, or your journal open, or whatever you have in front of you. There are Bibles in the chairs in front of you if you forgot yours, or uh, don't have your device with you, or the batteries died, or whatever the case uh, may be. Uh, a reminder also to, to silence your phones. If you haven't already done that, we're going to have the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. So today, I want to briefly just take us through verse by verse, 13 through 16, and, and then just make a couple comments, a couple points of application out of that, mostly out of verse 13. So let, let's begin uh, looking together at 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. Uh, Paul is writing, and he says this. He says, we also thank God continually. We thank God constantly. And the we here is Paul and Silas and Timothy. The, the ministry team had been to Thessalonica and planted that church. So this ministry team is thanking God constantly. The beginning of verse 13 tells us. What are they thanking God for? On behalf of the Thessalonians, what is he thanking God for? When you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. That's what they're constantly giving thanks for. The way they received the word of God. The end of verse 13, notice, it says, The word of God, which is at work in you who believe. So this word of God has power in it. It's at work in them. And they have received it in a way that is very different than the way they've received other things, other words from other men, other women, other people. You've received it because it is of divine origin in a totally different way. And we are giving thanks for that. So what we're talking about here is the message that they took was the gospel. So first and foremost, the word of God here is referring to the gospel message. Paul and Timothy and Silas didn't bring the New Testament with them to Thessalonica, right? Why, why didn't they do that? Somebody tell me. It's being written. So they, 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 they all had the, the Torah. They had the Hebrew Bible. But this is the year AD 50 and the New Testament is being written. So they didn't bring little pocket New Testaments with them to Thessalonica and pass them out outside school. They came there verbally with the gospel message, which is that Jesus Christ, this man, this God-man died on the cross. Many people have died on the cross, but only Jesus died on the cross as a sin substitute for the Savior of the world as God in the flesh. This actually happened. He was the Messiah. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And this message, this gospel has power in it. The Messiah has come. And so what they are thanking God for, this ministry team, is that when you received the word of God, referring first and foremost to the gospel, that you received it as a divine message. We get messages all over the place. You, you just had a message about Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And when I or anyone else is speaking, we need to measure that message and discern that message by the word of God, by the scriptures. So there's a difference. There's a reason, have you know, you've, you've noticed, you participate this every week. There's a reason that we stand up when we're reading the scriptures. We're not required to do that. It's not a law. It's just a practice that we do. We're free to do it or not do it. 
But we do that to distinguish between the word of man, what's being sped, said right now. It's, it's kind of being sped too. We've got a lot going on today. It's being sped, it's being said, which requires discernment. And then there's the word of God, which requires submission and obedience to him because it comes directly from God. It's divine. So first and foremost, when we read the word of God in this verse, in verse 13, we're talking about the gospel message, but we are also by extension talking about contemporary missionaries, preachers, and evangelists who bring the gospel. And then thirdly, by extension, we are also talking about the written word of God, the Bible. So there's this this historical context where we're talking about the gospel message. As we read this, that gospel message also occurs today in missionaries and pastors and everyday people like you as you have conversations at grocery stores and at work and on campuses and wherever God takes you on airplanes, you are proclaiming this word of God as you share about Jesus. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy did. And they are giving thanks continually without stopping for how they received the word of God. This is what the emphasis is from this sermon out of verse 13. But let's look at the other verses as well. And then I'll come back and make a few comments of application out of verse 13. So let's move on. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen. See, they didn't listen to the word of man, not, not to the, the word of God. It's, uh, phone's, phone's going off. Sorry, I'm being distracted. So here we go. Back to the text. Verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. What's he saying here? When he says countrymen or whatever your translation has there, what he's letting us know that the church in Thessalonica was primarily not a Jewish church. There were some Jews who come to know the Lord, but it's primarily a Gentile church, non-Jewish church. And guess what? They are experiencing suffering. One of the main themes in 1 Thessalonians is the suffering of the believers in Thessalonica. They're receiving suffering just as the primarily Jewish churches received suffering from the Jews. Now, let me just make a brief comment here. I don't want to go too far overboard on on saying this, but this is one of the passages that people who wrongly view the Bible and Christianity as anti-Semitic, this is one of the passages they point to. And you could see, if you read this passage, from an, asking the question, is the Bible anti-Semitic? You might think, okay, the Bible's anti-Semitic. Look at this. The context here is these are Jews. In verse 14, when it says Jews, we're talking about Jews who killed the Lord Jesus, who opposed the church, who don't want the gospel to be spread. Jews who are interested in their own power, not in the power of God. And by the way, this is being written by a Jew this passage. And Jesus was a Jew. And the church overwhelmingly, not at Thessalonica, but by the year AD 50, the churches of Jesus were overwhelmingly Jewish. This is not an anti-Semitic passage. It is simply pointing out that some of the Jews were highly antagonistic to Jesus and to the gospel. And guess what? So were Gentiles. That's what's going on in Thessalonica. Verse 15. So the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. So 
And then the last sentence, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. A wrong reading of this passage would say Jews are evil and the wrath of God is coming upon them and Christianity is anti-Semitic. That is not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying anyone, Gentiles or Jews, who oppose God and oppose the gospel and oppose Jesus, they are building up wrath. Do you say that? Do you get that? The Bible, just say amen if you're like sleeping or something so I, so I can keep going in my weakness in the flesh isn't thinking that you're all lost. So are, am I, am I, are you guys, are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. All right. This is not an anti-Semitic text. It's just telling it the way that it was. It wasn't just the Jews. It was also the Romans and others who opposed Jesus. But this is pointing out the Jews and the Gentiles. So back to verse 13, a few points of application. The great thanksgiving, the emphasis here is on how they received the word of God. And we are giving thanks for it. They are not receiving it as the word of man, but they are receiving it as though it is from God. And so how do we respond to this passage? As we, as we listen to sermons each week, it's not to enjoy ourselves. It's not to think that was a good sermon. It's not to get more knowledge unless that knowledge is leading to the change in our lives. Godly change. And so the godly change in our lives that we should be seeking out of verse 13, and even if you came in today thinking, man, I totally received the gospel and the Bible as of divine, origins, of divine origin, I want to suggest that for you and for me, there is room for growth and being saturated with the word of God and being submitted to the gospel and gospel themes and to the Bible itself. I was so reminded of that this week as I'm reading Proverbs 24. You know, sometimes... The right response, when I read Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 this week, I'm just convicted. Now, I shouldn't be miserable. I shouldn't stay in that conviction. It should lead me to action. How would you have me respond, God, to Proverbs 24, 11, and 12? Help me see Proverbs 11 and 12 as of divine origin and, and help me to respond to that passage, one that we're likely to ignore and most churches are, are maybe going to skip over. I'm not trying to toot our horn here. I'm just saying we are called to preach the whole counsel of God and you are called to read and meditate on the whole counsel of God and receive it as the word of God. So Lord, help me to increasingly view the gospel and the Bible as as of divine origin, and it needs to be completely separate from the word of Mike or from this person on the radio I like to listen to or from this video or from this podcast or from this TV show or from this movie. We need discernment when we listen to, to other things in a way that we do not need discernment. We still need discernment when we're reading the scriptures to interpret it and understand it, but we don't need discernment because none of it is going to be rejected. It is his word to us. It is the gospel to us. So yes, we need discernment, but we need discernment in a fundamentally different way when it is the word of man. So my prayer for me and for you is that we would increasingly view the gospel and by extension, primarily verse 13 is referring to the gospel, but by extension, it's referring to preaching and communication of the gospel in coffee shops and, in, and, and school campuses and everywhere. And by extension, it is also referring to the written word of God that has the gospel in it. So, I heard someone who is a lifelong churchgoer on the radio this week, Martin Scorsese. You guys know this guy? He's a Hollywood director. I didn't know that he was a lifelong churchgoer. And he recently had a film come out. He's asked a question about eternity, 
We're going to listen to his response in just a couple moments. But before we listen to that, he's recently come out with a film. I haven't seen the film. This isn't an endorsement of the film. This isn't saying you should go see the film. His films are known for being very violent. It's called The Irishman. And a plugged in, Focus on the Family's Ministry says this about his film that just came out. This is why he's on the radio promoting his film. He says the results could push the Irishman, uh, this is what Focus on the Family's website says, the results could push the Irishman to awards season glory, perhaps even nabbing a Best Picture Oscar that Netflix clearly covets. I guess Netflix made this, funded this film. And like much of Scorsese's work, the Irishman weaves deeper, sometimes even spiritual messages into the mix. The Irishman deals deeply with sin and confession, something that we've dealt with today already in our service, with family and betrayal. So Martin Scorsese is asked on NPR interview this last week about what happens when you die. What is beyond death? Here's his moment. And as we listen, we hear a little bit of the bias of the interviewer here. She kind of finishes, Terry Gross does, she asks him the question, then she asks, well, if there is anything after. Well, what's your take on it? Let's listen to the question and to his response. Did you hear an answer in there? He's been in church his entire life. I didn't know that. He talks about it in the interview. He's asked about what happens after we die. I heard that on the radio this week as I'm reading 1 Thessalonians 2. And I don't, my point is not to judge him or to beat my breast because the reality is, if, if, which they're not going to, but if they invited me to an interview on NPR and I'm before the world, I might kind of give some kind of fuzzy answer because of the oppression of the world and the spiritual forces that are at work. And I might just say, yeah, it's transcendent. Yeah, yeah, there, there is something after death. I, I, I might, in a compromised moment, I might be just like that. So my point today is not to, to, to slam Martin Scorsese. My point is that if someone from the Thessalonian church was in that interview and they were asked what happens after death, they would say, yes, something happens. And, and Terry, do, do you know what? Do you know what, NPR listeners? Do you know what? This is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the Son, and he who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Terry, NPR listeners, do you have life? It is about Jesus if you want to live forever and ever after death. It is a possibility, and it is a reality, and it isn't by merit, and it isn't by works. It is by grace. Yes, this is what my films are about because I have been impacted by the gospel, by the word of God, and Paul is giving thanks because this is how they, the Thessalonians, who impacted their whole region, received the gospel message, and by extension, the scriptures, the word of God. God, help me to increasingly view the gospel as of divine origin and be able to speak about not only the next life, but about this life and how we are changed by the grace of God. And it is what life is all about. Help us not to stumble and mumble and bumble, but to be as the Thessalonians would, risking themselves and their identities and persecution for the sake of this gospel. They are like the churches in Judea. They have received the word of God as it is. Not as the word of men, 
Secondly, Lord, help me to increasingly be changed by gospel power. I'm blown away by this. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. I, I think about this verse all the time. The one we're about to go to in Romans 1. And I'm going there because, again, at the end of verse 13, it says that the word of God is at work in you. So this word of God, which is referring to the gospel, is at work in you. So by implication, the gospel has power. We get it explicitly in Romans 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So my prayer for me and for you is, Lord, help me to be increasingly changed by gospel power. By gospel power. The Thessalonian church was changed mightily. We as individuals and as a church collectively can be changed. And that change comes from the power of the Holy Spirit and from the power of the gospel. That deserves a whole other sermon. How, how is there power in this message in the gospel? It's supernatural. It's grace. It's incredible. Help me to be changed by that the way these people were changed by that 2,000 years ago. Finally, and we'll finish up with this. It's not as the word of men, but Lord, help me to increasingly be saturated with gospel themes. Gospel themes like hope. Gospel themes like love. Gospel themes like enduring suffering for the sake of a redemptive purpose. Those are all examples of gospel themes. We don't have time to go into any of them extensively today, but let's just, as we close, finish with one. Let's go back to verse 3 of chapter 1. This triad, the Christian triad. Let me read verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. In that first sermon, we heard that hope, that the order from 1 Corinthians 13 is, is, is shifted. Instead of faith, hope, and love, it's faith, love, and hope. And, and Paul, I'm suggesting, has reordered that order to emphasize hope because this is what the Thessalonian church is needing. They're needing the gospel theme of hope. Help me to be increasingly saturated with gospel themes. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's this theme of hope because of the emotional suffering and verbal persecution that's going on as they abandon their old ways of life and live a new life in Christ. Many of us here today have been in rough waters recently, and we too desperately need hope. That's in part why Paul's writing 1 Thessalonians, to give them encouragement and to give them hope to give thanks to God for how they have received the gospel message and the scriptures as of divine origin. Let's bow our heads and pray that we, too, would do the same. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the written scriptures. We thank you for the gospel message that can be shared by any one of us here, young or old. Lord, we pray that you would increasingly help us to not see the gospel as another worldview to not see the Bible as just another book that we prefer, but we see it as from you, as divine. And Lord, help us to live according to it, to think biblical thoughts, to think gospel themes, to preach gospel themes to ourselves. And may we be changed by your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.